Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world blowing that Jerickson shofar. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Rosh Hashanah is here. Whew. Great place to start. Did you see Jerickson Profar's brother hitting a walk-off home run in the Frontier League playoffs uh, for the for the team? I, I'm already forgetting what it is, but I, I I should have brought them up when you were talking about your Montreal visit. But shouts out Jeremy Profar. Uh, really, sorry, Jeremy Shofar. I apologize. Uh, it is yeah. Rosh Hashanah. It is Friday. Uh, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Uh, although not Shabbat Shalom, because Chaim Bloom was fired by the Boston Red Sox. We're going to get into that, of course. That will be one of our main topics. We are going to bring in a special guest, Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, to tell us a little bit about uh, that whole situation. We're going to talk about the Rangers' mop of the Blue Jays. Very impressive from Texas. Uh, the Braves clinched their sixth straight division, and Jake was there. And it's Friday, so we'll do the good, the bad, the ugly. And at the very end, producer Chris is going to weep on this podcast because he is happy. I'm not going to explain why. You can think about that for the next 40 minutes, and we'll talk about it at the very end. But Jake, let's begin where you were. I know you're no longer in Philadelphia, but you were there this week, as we know. We spoke to you on Wednesday uh, in the morning before the Braves clinched their sixth straight ALAL, their sixth straight NL East title. And you were there, and if you were watching the Bally Sports broadcast as I was, we saw a whole lot of Jake Mintz. Jake Mintz was right up in there just talking to some baseball players, talking to some baseball coaches. It was very funny. It was one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is so funny that this is our job. And I know that you probably also still find it funny. As, as lucky as we are to do it, when you see stuff like that, it's like, oh, hey, there's my friend Jake. That part never gets old. So let's hear it from you. You were in there. You got to see the Braves, the best human baseball, win another division title. What was your experience in there? Fortunately, I couldn't hear anything you were saying, but I could see you have a nice chat with Strider. I know you wrote on him for Fox Sports. That turned out very well. Um, so he, this specific post-game champagne geyser celebration was interesting to me because I didn't know what it was going to be. The Braves have won six of these in a row. Many of the same players have been there for a, a number of them. This is not ho-hum for them, but it is the expectation. And it is not just the expectation. It is step one. If the Braves went full dogpile or like totally nuts to win this division, it's a weird look, right? But it's also a weird look if they go full hardo mode and they're like, no celebrating. This is just it's just another win on the road to total glory. Like, that's also dumb. And mm -hmm. so I was thinking, what is this going to look like? My experience of being in these locker rooms consists of the Padres beating the Mets last year. 
the Phillies beating the Braves and the Phillies beating the Padres, and then the 2016 Cubs beating the Dodgers. Those are the locker room celebrations that I've actually been in, okay? And so it's a very odd mix. The Braves, they went hard. They went harder than I thought they would, and the correct amount of hard. Brian Snitker, their manager, was asked, how do you convey the level of celebration to the team? Like, do you want them to be professional or do you want them to enjoy it? He's like, whenever we get to this point and, and we win a division, it's so freaking hard to do that I want them to enjoy it as much as they want. And that was definitely felt within the locker room. Here are the main things I was thinking about watching them. I thought back to when the Dodgers won their million division titles in a row and what those celebrations were like. And it did feel like what would impact it was a couple things. One, who did they beat that night? I do think that that matter. I think that the fact that they beat the Phillies in Philly made it a little bit sweeter, right? To bury the team that not that they had a chance of necessarily catching them, but their biggest contender, their biggest competition in the division, they played these close games. They won three of them. They showed them who's boss. They said, we are the best team in baseball in your face. Deal with it. It's where their season ended a year ago. Like exactly. Like I think that definitely amplified the excitement. The other couple things, well, also off day, the next day, that definitely helps. The other thing that I think is interesting, especially when comparing it to the Dodgers and how they were celebrating every year that they made it, because as it as the Dodgers won every year, every year, every year, they hadn't won the World Series yet. And of course, they finally did in 2020, but the Braves don't have that burden in the same way. Yes, a lot of these guys, and this is how I wanted to kind of transition to something you told me last night about who was enjoying it the most. But this team, a lot of these guys have won a World Series not that long ago. So it's a combination of confidence and knowing you haven't necessarily done anything yet, but also there isn't that added weight of like, oh my God, we've won eight in a row and we still haven't won a World Series the way that it was with the Dodgers. It runs the total spectrum because the guy, I mean, this is not fair, but the guy who was like enjoying it the least, and I'm putting quotes around that, was probably Austin Riley, who is not, like that's just not his vibe. And yeah, so yeah. he was just, he was like drinking a beer. Like, it, yeah, yeah, it's like, not about not it. enjoying it. It's about who's enjoying it. I'm not, not enjoying it. It's who's enjoying it the most, right? Right. Um, and then on the flip side of that, though, like Travis Darno, who's done this seven times. He's won seven divisions, five in Atlanta, Tampa, and I think one with the Mets in mm-hmm. 15, right? He was loving it. And so it just totally depends on the type of player. The players who, you know, the meme, can't believe this is my life. <laughs> yes. Those are the players having the best time who can't stop smiling. And that was Nicky Lopez, who I hope oh. to have on the show at some point next week to talk about his experience. Nicky Lopez spent the last couple of years with the Kansas City Royals, started this year with the Kansas City Royals, the worst team in the world. Okay. He was traded to the Braves, the best team in the world, plucked from obscurity and irrelevance to be a good vibes, utility, backup infielder on the best team in baseball. Yeah. They he, basically were like, hey, you can be better than Charlie Culberson. Just come be he that. he was like, damn straight I can. And yeah. he has been. And yeah. so like he was so happy. Pierce Johnson, who was on the Rockies, like he was clearly beaming. And then Sean Murphy, who had to, you know, grind it out last couple years with the A's and is now around like-minded people like he was amped too. And so it's always interesting to see like which type of players are just 
Michael yeah. Tonkin, who was, you know, basically out of baseball. Kevin Pillar, who mm-hmm. came back after a season-ending injury last year and, like, was going to retire and now is – like, those are the guys who are the most in. Yeah, and Lopez is a good example and just a reminder of how ridiculous the trade deadline is, right? I mean, our poor friend Lucas Giolito, now he hasn't done himself any favors. He hasn't pitched very well. But this guy has changed teams twice and it's somehow gotten worse each time. <laughs> like, and he was already going from a shitty team, right? So, like, it's just such an, a fascinating dynamic of how players respond to being traded and, and all there's so many things involved with behind the scenes. I, there was a, a good note recently about the, the flip side of this from Ken Rosenthal about Teoscar Hernandez, who basically admitted, like, I was stressed for all of July because I thought I was going to get traded and I had to move my three kids in the middle of the season. He doesn't get traded. And now he goes goes off because he's like, I'm chilling. I know where I'm going to be. I'm I, This is way more comfortable. Now I can just focus on, you know, hitting home runs. And it's like, there's the trade deadline just has so many dynamics to it that we are so focused on just like, how much F war does this add for this team? And it's just like, there are so many other things involved in the trade deadline, whether the trades happen or not. And I think Nicky Lopez is a very, very fun uh, example. And as soon as that happened, I was just like, oh my God. I mean, it's like, you know, Willy Wonka golden ticket stuff. I mean, look at this. This guy gets to go on the Braves at like the least pressure possible. And he's he's clearly enjoying it. So yeah, hopefully we can have Nicky on at some point soon. The Braves are really good. Yeah. yeah. How about that? I, here's the Braves thing, The just in terms of just analyzing how good they are quickly. We have so much written about the lineup, and I wrote a little thing about Eddie Rosario, and you've written about the lineup, and you wrote about Strider. But now, and as I'm starting to get into postseason mode, and I'm looking at this pitching, I'm like, oh, shit. Like, they also have probably a top five, at least top three, right, with Freed, Strider, uh, and Morton. And you're like, oh, Mayors, are they top two? Are they top one? Like, they they could be, right? They're They're, they're right in that conversation. So I am actually kind of the opposite on that. Okay, so you're you're not feeling good about the starting pitching. Yeah, I mean it's. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about this now. I want to okay. talk about this. <laughs> that's in, fine. That's, in the post preview. That, that's fine. That, that was just kind of yeah. my. I was just looking at you know starting pitching stats for the last month, and the Braves are also still up in the top five. And I know Freed's come back, and Morton is as far as postseason goes. So uh, that, listen, that, that is a conversation for for you know the second week of October that we can have. But I don't know. That, that's just something that came to me is for as much as we've talked about the offense. There's a there's a version of this pitching staff that is also one of the best in baseball. All right, enough about the Braves. They've we're, gotten more we're, than enough. More China, thing. And we're going to talk about them all of October. Or, any one more thing. Yeah, just the experience of being in that room. It was a very small space compared to the yes. other ones I've been in. It was cordoned off very tightly and with, you know, almost like Tyvek uh, or like a, like a tarp around to the locker. So that, and the the alcohol contact high is nutso. It is just in the air. If you breathe in you feel a little tipsy because it's just the air. There's so much alcohol booze being, you know, fizzed around that. It's just, it just gets in your pores. It's really, it's like hot boxing with booze. It's very nuts. (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll see how many more of those. uh, Hopefully both of us get to be a part of in the coming weeks and months. All right, Jake, let's get to the biggest news of the week. Came down yesterday. And we're going to have a whole interview with Alex Spears, so you're going to hear that. But we wanted to give our own thoughts before we talk to an expert. Chaim Bloom, the chief baseball officer, not the Pobo. Hello, Red Sox. Maybe we should have known all along they didn't give him Pobo 
title, that was always going to be an issue. He was always going to be vulnerable to be taken, struck down from his chief baseball officer thrown. And that is what happened yesterday before a doubleheader with the Yankees. The Red Sox fired Heim Bloom. This is how I found out. I was just working on a couple things, doing some writing, non-Red Sox related, because I honestly, the Red Sox, I didn't really think I had to think about them anymore this season. I was kind of putting them, they got their ass kicked by the Yankees in two games earlier this week. They lost another one yesterday. Uh, they're, they just have not been playing very well, and they're probably headed for last place, and I wasn't really thinking about them anymore. Uh, and then my brother, David, texted me, wow, not so Chag Sameach, which... If you don't know what the hell I'm saying is basically the Hebrew word for happy holidays. And he's saying, wow, that was not that because Rosh Hashanah is coming up. And I was like, why, why are you saying that? Like, what, what did something happen to, to change my, my apples and honey plans? And then I was like, what? And I opened Twitter and there it was. They fire client bloom, uh, an MOT legend, as you called him on Twitter. And yeah, that's, that's obviously what we're thinking about, but let's talk about it in terms of the Red Sox and baseball. <laughs> No, first I'm going to talk about it in terms of being Jewish. So <laughs> firing him before the high holidays is tough. Mm-hmm. Rosh Hashanah starts tonight. He will be super offline. Yeah. You know, he's True. more ortho than you and I. Tonight, Saturday, Sunday. Here's, <clears throat> here's why this was the right time, <laughs> despite that. If you fire Chaim Bloom next week, in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's when the book of life is open. Yeah, that's a great point. And you don't want that. I mean, that's a bad time. And then if you fire him after Yom Kippur and the Book of Life is closed, you got to wait until next year. If your ownership group led by John Henry, you got to wait a whole year to repent for firing Simon Bloom. And that's going to stick with you for a full 365 all the way to next Elul, you know, and that's going to really get to you. And so the only option was to get it done before the new year. John Henry can repent this weekend mm-hmm. and next week. It's the right move. Yep, I, you're right. Uh, so in that sense, maybe the right timing. Otherwise, in terms of the timing specifically, we're going to get into that with Alex. But strictly from this happened, how did it make you feel, Jake, regardless of the Jewish context? I think it was fascinating to see the reaction yesterday where after we had the White Sox uh, you know, front office dismissal and forget what happened after where they stayed internal and hired Chris Kett. It was like, yeah, like it's surprising in the sense that they finally did it, but they finally did it. This was one where it was like, huh, okay, I know that he has done some things that has not been very popular, but like they are in, in some senses, a stronger position roster-wise, with the exception of trading Mookie Betts, which we'll get into with Alex, than they were before. Like he has made it a healthier organization. He's made a lot of good moves so why is he getting the boot now? And I kind of fell somewhere in between that. Like, I do sense that there's part of me that's like, I kind of sort of like the idea of a uh, to see a team hold standards that say you're finishing in last place. That's not acceptable when you have a lot of other situations where guys are failing over and over and over and nothing changes. But there is some, not just hypocrisy, but some inconsistencies with the plan and the commitment from a financial payroll standpoint with Boston, where it makes you question the ownership standards, the ownership strategy, the ownership planning, and the kind of whiplash of changing your pobo 
every three years. So that is where I, I kind of fall on it. I, I feel like he didn't do a terrible job. I think that especially when you look at this roster this year, even if it is going to finish in last place, there are some bright spots. But if you're going to hold those standards and you're in this division, I can understand being like, no, that's not good enough. It's so hard to battle back from trading Mookie from a PR perspective for Chaim. It's like the people who are Red Sox fans who are not thinking about Tristan Cassis until he shows up and is good in the big leagues who are not thinking about how he rebuilt a foundation and systems and process and all this stuff. They're thinking about the Red Sox don't play in October the last two years. That's what they're thinking about. Right. And so, and they're thinking, Oh, you traded Mookie Betts. And so those people's opinions do matter because the perception is reality to a certain level. I was surprised by just how wide the response was in terms of like, shock and horror to relief it was from people who are rational it was very very interesting and i can't begin to say that i have a feel for it i've seen the red sox i haven't seen them since may and so i i guess i get the sense that it was a bad feel and culture fit there where there were some aspects of being a gm that maybe chaim didn't have full, uh, not control, but like full feel for. And there were people within the organization below him and aside him who just didn't think he was the right guy for the job Mm -hmm. and that there was discord internally for years there. And now there's two ways to that, right? If you believe that those people didn't like Chaim for good reasons, which again, I don't know, it's like, well, okay, so they're holding the organization to a higher standard than this, and they're trying to make it good. And then the flip side is these people never gave Chaim the opportunity to succeed because they were never fully bought into what he was trying to do. you know. Yep. And so, again, I don't know. But if you're looking at different ways to read the situation, those are the different doors and paths you can take. Where do I fall? I think I fall where you fall, which is a boring, rational place to be. I get having high standards. I don't think he was empowered and given the best chance to succeed. I don't think that he put the necessary chips on the table uh, and was aggressive enough to lead to success. I think he was really hesitant. Um, And now, again, part of that is an ownership thing. He was doing what they wanted, in theory. And so it does seem somewhat unfair that he is now bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, too, when GMs get fired, like we're quick to assess the tenure and be like, where, what went well, what didn't go well. But a lot of this is just looking forward. And if it is simple as they have a different vision for what happens next for the Boston Red Sox, who may be finishing in last place and looking up at four teams who will be trying to win next season, they might decide he's not the guy that's going to get us back to the top. And it might be as simple as that. Uh, But Don't take our word for it. Listen to someone who actually covers the team. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Alex Spear, the Boston Globe, to give us a little bit more insight into the Chaim Bloom firing. Hey, everyone. Producer Chris here with a quick housekeeping note about our merch. Look, in Australia, we love clothes and almost always wear them. If you're like us and also enjoy dabbling in clothes wearing, then why not consider some official baseball barbercast merchandise? Whether it's a jumpy rafter, which you would call a sweatshirt, a cap, which we would call an old hair hugger, or a shirt, which we would call a belly wrap, we have it all for you. But that's not all. 
Do you also like to drink water or caffeinated beverages? Well, that's great because we have mugs and bottles to help you quench your thirst too. To buy any of this merch, go to podswag.com slash baseball. The link is in the description of the podcast. And don't leave yourself clothesless this postseason. Welcome back to Baseball Barbercast. We are now very excited to be joined by a special guest, one of the best we could possibly get for this topic. It is Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. Alex, welcome to Baseball Barbercast. I believe your Barbercast debut. It's mm. long anticipated. I'm I'm honored. I I feel I feel like you know just over overjoyed that after all these years and uh you know particularly. With with great fascination, given given that I did get to cover the smallest fragment of the of the Cespedes experience, <laughs> that I finally get to join the Barbacast. We deny that that era even <laughs> ever occurred. It was a blip on the radar. It was Alex, the, it thank- was so like weird and delightful, like watching him insistently, like at a time at, in a ballpark where he could not play the position that he was playing because he was terrified by the left field wall. Spending every pregame. Doing nothing but taking grounders at third base. It was incredible. <laughs> well, that again, is what we call good process. That's that's our guy. <laughs> that's our guy being a total weirdo. I mean, they were out of it at that point. It's true. I both like completely deny it ever happened, and then I'm also like, that was actually so funny. So it yeah, kind of yeah. it kind of goes both ways. But we are not here to talk about the very brief uh, yo in Boston tenure. We are here to talk about the biggest news out of baseball this week, and that is that the Red Sox have departed, have parted ways, have not mutually agreed. They have Ted Bloom, goodbye, adios, shalom, have a nice Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Bloom is no longer the chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox. So here's my first question for you, Alex Spear. How was your day yesterday? How did that all go down? <laughs> well, it was my birthday. So, uh, okay. so incredible. I had, uh, I oh, had a happy very birthday. Nice, thank you. I had a very nice morning with my family and uh, then went to uh, went to Fenway in order to uh, in order to find, you know, something to write about. Uh, you know, I was uh, some of the some of the young players uh, had some nice conversations with them yesterday and was settling in to uh, to work on that for a nice, quiet, uh, quiet day that was largely divorced from the game. And then the Red Sox announced that uh, the parting of ways uh, with uh, the the departure, the, the non-mutually agreed upon departure uh, with High and Bloom. And then things got uh, rather hectic. And, you know, it's I, I think that uh, the way that uh, the way the way that it struck was, you know, this was about an hour before the first game of the doubleheader. Um, the timing of it comes as stunning right when you're in the middle of a ballpark and all of a sudden by like there you've changed the uh the direction and the oversight of uh, of how an organization's run but i don't think that for anyone who had been around the organization for a while that it came as a as a you know as a as a bolt from the blue i think that this had been um an ongoing talking point and whether or not the tolerance of you know of owners for kind of staying the course at a time when they were you know when they were tied for last place and potentially going to finish in last place and certainly going to finish out of the playoffs for the third time in four years um this was a a growing this this was a reality that was kind of clouds that we were all seeing forming on the horizon at the same time like you mentioned the timing was a little bit stunning did they i know sam kennedy spoke yesterday i don't i don't know if did john henry actually speak i know he was no, maybe around so john uh, henry didn't speak 
Um, but was there a, an explanation for like now versus in two weeks or in, and I, and I know that the, the actual contract length maybe has something to do with that, but did they give any sort of explanation for like literally why yesterday? Uh, not for, not for why yesterday per se. I, I think that they just, you know, they were probably meeting internally for a bit, mm-hmm. uh, in discussing the future direction of the organization. And I, I think that once they made the decision that they didn't see Bloom as being the guy moving forward, then it was time to, you know, it was time to move on and, uh, and start the process because it becomes a messy process. It's, it's a lot harder, uh, to start, uh, vetting candidates. Um, if you have, uh, if you have someone in place, um, yeah, that, that's kind of, uh, Kennedy said that they had not, uh, talked to anyone, uh, you know, in which presumably would mean David Stearns, um, well, uh, you know, before, before yesterday. Um, so one, one presumes that they wanted to be able to kind of, uh, have an open process where they didn't have to like tiptoe around this awkward situation. This is a very oversimplified question, but in their minds, what were the failings of the Bloom era? Is it as simple as a lack of results? Because Chaim Bloom, if you've ever met him or ever, you know, this is a funny way to say it, seen his work, he is a methodical, big picture, stay the course type guy. Did they just not have an appetite for waiting anymore? Is it that simple? Um, I think that that's, uh, first of all, I want to note that this might be the uh, the first conversation between three people in which all three of them are going to say Chaim uh, rather than like Chaim. Yes, uh, so yes, is, we have no. to do that. It's Rosh Hashanah coming up. I mean, they, we got high holidays. We're going to give you the ch, okay? That is the name. And I know that, you know, he has accepted that we're going to hear a lot of haim and shame and whatever. Not here on the barbacast. So I, you're right. And we will continue. Yeah. Yeah. Deserves like, you know, deserves a moment to like, you know, a, a tip of the hat. Right. Yes. Um, but I, I, I think you're not too far off in that characterization. I think that, um, I, I think that he was, uh, I, I think that there was a thought that when he was hired, uh, he was not only going to be able to, uh, to accelerate the rebuilding of the, uh, of the farm system and the young talent base, but that in doing so, he would also, um, he would also help the Red Sox with significant resources of it at their disposal. Uh, no longer tops in baseball payroll, but certainly significant uh, significant resources um, that are in line with some of the better teams and with some of the better teams in baseball. Uh, that he would be able to take a um, a kind of short path to this uh, to this quasi rebuild, right? Like it's uh, it's a bridged rebuild. Um, and I think that you didn't see the creativity in, uh, especially with trades, um, to accelerate that path, right? Like it was a, it was a slow, methodical, like, okay, farm system getting incrementally better, like kind of a cautious approach. A, a you know, I, I think that he's characterized, I think that he's mischaracterized for, uh, for how, like, He's characterized sometimes as being completely conservative in the free agent market defined solely by like the one and two year deals that featured team options and all that uh, that happened. There there was a five year investment in Yoshida. There was there was a six year to commit commitment to story. And obviously there's the Devers deal. Um, nonetheless, I feel like the Red Sox didn't have the full like the full arsenal of uh, of uh, of moves of transactions uh, that they made to kind of accelerate their path to 
getting back to being really good in a division where being really good is really hard. Um, and I, I do think that um, the absence of the ability to use trades, especially like the shame of it is, you know, he the one trade he made like was at the outset and defined and, and hovered over the entirety of his tenure. And it's one that no one would want a part of. It was one that like kind of the, the you know, the rails were greased and he was going to have to make that one uh, at the time of being hired for it. But uh, but then there wasn't the countervailing uh, succession of you know, of trades that um, that were creative and where you took uh, where you took maybe a, an area of strength and turned it into an even greater strength on the roster in, in right. making a, a better balanced roster. Which is something that obviously he had done many, many times when he was in charge of the Tampa Rays. And I'm sure. Well, ownership... uh, quick pause. Uh, he, you know, he was uh, he was, you know, working, uh, I think, uh, on the org chart, he was behind Eric Neander. Right. Like. Um, so I, I think that there's, he had been involved. It's, it's, he has definitely been involved with a lot of stuff, but, um, I, he had not been the kind of principal headline decision maker. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, I never that's a good and point. I, well, I was just gonna say, I also think that's an interesting point to make as we think about David Stearns in New York and how people want to, a lot of these owners want to copy paste Andrew Friedman with the Dodgers and Andrew Friedman with the Dodgers is like, Seems like best case scenario, they they win more than any other team and they still only have one World Series to show for it, right? I mean, clearly you would you still call it a success, but it is hard to just take these smart approaches that you do here and do it elsewhere. And I think that you mentioning the division is such a big part of this. I do wonder if the degree to which the Rays and Orioles ascended almost presented an even greater sense of urgency, not even necessarily about how disappointing this year with Boston has been, but it's like, we need someone to really kick this into high gear if we are going to keep up. Is that feel like a, a fair characterization? But Jake, I don't, were you going to say something else? It's yeah. it's wild that the Orioles are where they are with just like wave after wave of like, you know, of real dudes like coming. It's, uh, you know, they, they have obviously fantastic players in the big leagues already um, and a lot coming behind them. Um, so... Dud, I, I think that it. Uh, I think that the the degree of difficulty never went down, <laughs> right? Uh, over the course of uh, over the course of Bloom's four year tenure, um, it only went up with this uh, with this kind of realization that as you look at, um, you know, we were at the futures game, and you see, you know, you see, uh, you know, not just you see Jackson Holiday looming on the horizon for the Orioles uh, among several other young players who are. Uh, who are behind him, right? At that point, Jordan Westberg was still in the minors, and now he's in the majors and being really good. Um, and uh, you know, the Rays have uh, have their own talent base, although there's always going to be turnover. But yeah, it's hard, and you have to be creative in order. You you will have to be creative in order to be in order to keep up, and you'll have to be bold. And um, I think that again, I, I think that uh, Bloom, you know, Bloom improved a lot of uh, systems and processes. Uh, certainly the Red Sox farm system is in uh, a much better place than it was. Um, they are, they have young talent that's able to like help out the, in the, at the big league level. Some of it uh, that you're building around at the big league level, some of which you'll be building around in the future at the big league level. But, you know, you were also going to need, uh, yeah, methodical is going to get you a lot more third and fourth play in, you know, mm. is going to get you maybe a lot more third and fourth and fifth place finishes in the AL East. I have two more questions. I want to hop back to Mookie Betts because when, when people were asking me about Bloom yesterday and the overall response from Red Sox fans, 
it was it was the worst first impression a general manager could possibly make. Hello, that sports thing <laughs> you love more than any other sports thing in the world. He's gone. Nice to meet you. I'm Chaim Bloom. <laughs> Do you think that not that he was failed from that start because in 2021, I mean, he was being celebrated for taking that team to where he took that team all the way to the ALCS. But how does the Mookie trade define how we'll look at his tenure? Yeah, enormously. And, you know, fairly or not, um, it's interesting because if you look back, there just weren't great offers that were on the table. Uh, I, I think that, you know, there, if, if he had had the opportunity to make, you know, to make the, like, it's interesting that a year later, the uh, the Guardians were able to make Lindor for, you know, for Jimenez and Rosario, uh, both of whom ended up being, you know, like Jimenez obviously was like an MVP candidate uh, in 2022. Um, and that offer, you know, all things considered, probably in all likelihood, like he got the best lead, like major league piece that was available to the Red Sox at that time in, in acquiring Alex Verdugo, uh, which is, you know, not a which is a, you know, that's, that's an imperfect, that's an imperfect member of the roster to use as your starting point in replacing the young talent. Um, you know, big whiff on the, uh, on the prospect who was on the chief prospect who was in that, uh, given, uh, you know, given the cheater downs ended up being just given away via waivers and wasn't, uh, was never able to really contribute meaningfully in the major leagues. Uh, Connor Wong has emerged as better than expected, but still, you know, you're looking at a guy in Verdugo who's been an average to slightly better than average player and Wong probably like average player. And you're looking for like if you're going to have Mookie Betts leave, then you better be uh, an organization that finds some star power to bring in. Right. Right. And, uh, the efforts to do so, um, you know, if you're looking at the at the efforts to acquire stars that were like kind of buy low moves that paid off nicely. The first year of Kike Hernandez, I think, was a, a terrific deal. Justin Turner was an awesome signing uh, this year. Um, but, you know, he'll be a free agent after this year because so, he's going to opt out of uh, a deal that doesn't pay him remotely what he's worth. Um, but, you know, they brought back Verdugo and they and like Trevor Story was meant to be the star player who they were bringing yeah. in. And he's been too injured to show whether or not he can be uh, that or close to that. Um, Yoshida has been uh, has been a, a nice hitter. You know, he's been a, a like a, a you know, he's hitting around 300 and OPSing around 800 for the season. But uh, he hasn't been spectacular. And there are like there are flaws in terms of how the defense plays and that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a I, franchise that's been defined by stars and by winning. And those two things haven't been present. Just quickly on the on the Mookie thing. Just one more thing on that. Like. It, I'm sure you've written this at some point, and I'm sure that there is a lot more behind the scenes that's a lot more solid than any of us will ever find out. But the extent to which the Mookie trade, like there's a spectrum here, right? There's the Red Sox leadership group looking for a new chief baseball officer and saying, if you take this job, you have to trade Mookie Betts. How would you do it? Versus Chaim Bloom getting the job and going to the leadership group and saying, I would like to trade Mookie Betts. In your understanding, where on that spectrum is the truth? How much of that deal ends up like, or I guess I'll say it like this, should be whatever the fuck that means on Chaim Bloom's shoulders? Um, I, I think that uh, there was an implicit, uh, 
he there were there was never a like in at the time that he was hired and that David Dombrowski was fired, uh, there was all of this uh, all of this discussion about um, a goal, not a mandate. And that was like related to a lot of things in the organization that was related to getting under the luxury tax threshold. And it was like it was like a joke, right? Like, yeah, your goal is to get <laughs> under the luxury tax threshold. It's not a mandate. But anyone who's hired is going to know that. Yeah, like you better do this. You're being it's hired like an optional. It's like an optional practice when you're yeah. on. Yeah, your first move team. is going to be to say, you know what, I disagree with your goal, and so let's uh, let's go a very different direction, and please give me fifty million extra dollars. Probably not going to happen. So I, I like my understanding is actually that um, that the uh, that it was never in the interview process kind of brought up as a like, what would you do to trade Mookie Betts, or would you trade Mookie Betts even? Um, but instead, that it was kind of um, an implicit. Like you're going to have to shed payroll, and JD Martinez is uh, is going to opt into his deal, and so uh, you know, and so figure out a way to do that while also helping out the long term talent base. Um, and so you know, it was uh, it was a really rough way to start the tenure, and you know, and frankly, like because they were there was this goal, not a mandate. Uh, he wasn't there was no freedom to really do anything to bolster the major league squad in advance of that. So like the off season consisted of, I think like signing Martin Perez, which was actually like a, a nice little buy low signing in retrospect, but you know, modest, um, especially because they didn't get the all-star version of him and uh, in signing uh, Jose Peraza as their second baseman for like $5. And, uh, and then after that, like that was, that was the off season. Until Mookie Betts got traded on the uh, <laughs> eve of spring training, so yeah, that's a that's a pretty tough way to start. Uh, I think now we we look forward. Uh, our final question for you is, of course, it's still fresh. We know I, it doesn't seem like, in the way that Steve Cohen has been trying to hire David Stearns for two years, there does not seem to be one person who stands out as the obvious answer here. Um, so you don't necessarily have to give us me or you give us names, whatever. What kind of person? We all assume, oh, it does sure look like they're bouncing back and forth between a more process-oriented person and a, you know, fuck it, here we go person like Dombrowski. Um, so what is that the expectation? As we've already talked about, like I assume they do want to be more aggressive. This is a team who is going to want to be good next year. So who is going to get to come in here and presumably make moves more exciting than uh, Jose Peraza? <laughs> Um, so my, uh, uh, to, to your point of the bouncing back and forth, um, my, uh, my nine-year-old son who I, I left Fenway briefly yesterday because damn it, it was my birthday and I wanted to see my family a little bit. So I picked up my kids from school, uh, and, uh, and told my nine-year-old, uh, that, uh, that the Red Sox had parted ways with their chief baseball officer. He's uh, in the backseat uh, in the car seat, just weeping. <laughs> Say it ain't so, Dad. No, uh, you, you guys would be wildly amused to hear his uh, to hear his forty second rant on what had happened, <laughs> on what on on the uh, what he called the continuous loop of Red Sox of changes in the Red Sox baseball operations department. I am not surprised that your nine year old son. Knows the word continuous, but I will let you finish. <laughs> it was it was unexpected for me. I was, uh, you know, it was it was a, a little a little birthday surprise for me. Um, yes, uh, if if you want, I'll, I'll send you guys the audio. You'll enjoy it. But um, it, it does the the pendulum swings in in that organization, and I don't like they're going to be criticized for that. But at the same time, like I, I think that there 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 is some there there's some rationale, you know, like that. 
they they've also like the pendulum has swung in ways that they've tried to shorten the periods of being of being not good um and you know the pendulum has swung because there is a desire to uh to kind of accelerate getting back to being the best version of the organization so um you know i i think that uh there's also a willingness to acknowledge mistakes um now does that make the job less appealing for some people given that three straight uh, heads of baseball operations, two of whom won World Series, one of whom got to an ALCS, have been fired in the middle of their fourth season in that job. Yeah, I think there are going to be some people who take an awfully big, uh, you know, pause about their interest in the position. I think that was the case back when Chaim Bloom was hired in 2019, that there were people who were like, uh-uh, no, like, uh, you know, I'm going to- I'm not to- taking it because of that. Like, I'm, I won't do it. Yeah, well, you know, like, do you do you uproot your family? Do you like, you know, yeah, like, are you how what what are you willing to do for for that position, which can be very appealing. So to your question, it's going to be really interesting to see how the search process plays out, Um, because I think that on one hand, there's uh, there's a feeling around people in the organization that they would uh, that some people would really like to have an experienced general manager or head of baseball operations coming on board at the same time, aside from James Click, where it doesn't seem like a great fit because he's probably looking for an organization that offers significant stability uh, before uprooting his family. And frankly, he's probably too close philosophically and in terms of background to bloom uh, for the Red Sox to um, to say like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. Um, you know, that's that's a tricky one. So, uh, you know, I think that you're going to hear names. I, I think the one name that keeps popping up is Brandon Gomes, the GM of, of the Dodgers. Uh, who has uh, who has uh, I who has playing experience and field experience that I think the Red Sox front office um, I, I think that feel for the field is something that was missing and I, I do think that there was also uh, an absence of veteran um, of of an experience somewhat it doesn't even have to be the person you hire atop the baseball operations department but if you have a first time general manager uh, it's great if you have someone who has experienced that role aside uh aside him or her so that you can um so that you can say this is an opportunity where maybe you want to think about pushing a little bit more kenny williams and rick Hahn are available and have experience leading socks so maybe their names pop up alex thank you so much for joining us please plug your work and tell people where they can find you uh they can find me uh in the boston in the pages of the boston globe um and uh and uh, beyond that, if you use uh, the social media platform that once had a name and that is now uh, amidst that is now parted ways with that name, uh, that would be at Alex Spear. Also, not mutually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alex. We appreciate it. We will uh, talk to you again soon, my friend. All right, great to see you guys. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast, Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman. The Texas Rangers went on up to Canada and invaded and took four straight games from the Toronto Blue Jays this week. Four straight games in a series, Jordan. They mopped them. This was a historic week for mops. I'm glad we got at least one as we had six four-game series going on at the same time, but this was the only one where one team took all four games. And the Texas Rangers, despite losing Max Scherzer for the season in the middle of it, the injuries keep piling up for Texas. 
It doesn't matter because the lineup that looked like one of the two best lineups in baseball for the first two and a half months of the season is now starting to look like that again. They have won six in a row. They now have a one-game lead over Seattle and a two-and-a-half game lead over Toronto, who is now one-and-a-half back of Seattle for the final AL wildcard spot. And this was a an impressive showing for Texas, certainly because of the context, but it, it is it was the kind of win where it was like, okay, like you can do this, and then you don't have to stress about, you know, Chris Stratton and Brock Burke in the later innings. And the funny thing is you say, oh, well, did their pitching show any better? Jordan Montgomery was fantastic. Evaldi wasn't great, but like I'm looking at this pitching staff and I'm still worried. You know, a game that they won, the Scherzer game where he gets hurt and he was fantastic. LeClerc, Burke, and Araldis Chapman all gave up runs, right? There is still a lot of issues with this pitching staff, but this lineup, led by Corey Seager, who even if he finishes with 110 or 20 games, has a very compelling case for first place non-Otani MVP, uh, right alongside Julio Rodriguez and maybe a couple other guys. He has just been so ridiculous. OPS still over 1,000. They're getting contributions from Robbie Grossman, who's been ridiculously hot. I just wrote a little bit about Mitch Garver, who has the second highest OPS on the team behind Corey Seager. He's been fantastic. And Jonah Heim is starting to hit again. Of course, Semyon's still at the top of the lineup every day. So this lineup is still fully capable of being one of the best in baseball. And to do it in Toronto, where with their new dimensions, has actually played a lot more pitcher-friendly this year, at least for the Blue Jays hitters, was super impressive. Evan Carter now part of that lineup too. I was just so impressed with the Rangers effort and and at when they needed it the most. I want to talk about this from the Toronto perspective. Yeah. On Sunday, Kevin Kiermeyer addressed the crowd after they swept the Royals and was like, "We need you guys. We need you guys behind us all week." And then it was I think two or three of the games were the lowest attended Jays games of the year. Oh shit! I see that. Yeah, the uh, Monday and Wednesday. I think. I mean, they had thirty-seven thousand yesterday to watch them get their ass kicked yeah. again. But well, it was college night mm. um, last night. But I think Monday and Wednesday. Part of it is like a school is back, whatever. But there was just. I'm not trying to crap on Jays fans to be clear. But there was something about Kevin Kiermeyer being like, "The vibes are good. We need you all." And then on Monday it was like, "No, no, no. Mm. We're not going to go, and you're going to get mopped." And yeah. so it was quite a vibe switch. We had a, uh, did we have a players only meeting yesterday? That's a good game? question. I mean, I would say uh, w- the, the Jays vibes right now are, are unfortunately, now they're still in it and they could still make the playoffs, but it's, it's AL Padres. I mean, I'm looking at all these awesome, fun players and I'm not understanding how it's not computing for more wins. Now they have obviously played better and have not fallen off to the point where they are in such a hole where they have no chance the way that the Padres are. And a lot of that for the Padres is literally historic bad luck in close games, all these things, and and terrible clutch hitting too, which the Jays have a little bit some of. But it is just so much less, again, like the Padres, so much less than the sum of the parts. They can't really blame it on injury at this point. It's just like I'm looking at this lineup and it's just not it's just not getting the job done. And I know Vlad's taking the brunt of it, and that's mostly deserved. But there are a lot of other really good hitters in this lineup who are not producing runs. And so I don't I understand Vlad has the highest standard and, and that makes sense, but it is not just him. This lineup is underperforming up and down. Ben Nicholson Smith did report a team meeting before yesterday's loss. <laughs> Try again. Try again, folks. Um, Maybe they so, met and they were like, let's lose. 
like, hey, let's hit rock bottom today. Uh, and then we will we will bounce back. And, you know, this is this is it, man. I mean, they they don't have again, they're they're still in it. They now welcome Boston this weekend for three. They go on the road to New York and Tampa Bay and then finish at home with New York and Tampa Bay. So uh, those all that they are only playing division games uh, remaining and all those teams are going to enjoy, uh, I guess, either playing spoiler or burying the Blue Jays. So are they dead? No. We've said every AL team has looked like in the race has looked like absolute shit at some point over the last two weeks. So this is the Blue Jays turn and that's fine. They're still in it. But just the way that it's looking, it's just trending in a way where we haven't seen an like the Blue Jays have not had as many like impressively hot stretches. They did turn it around when we were worried about them a couple weeks ago. We looked ahead at Colorado, Oakland, Kansas City. They took care of business. Now you welcome in a good team and they kick your ass at home, right? And so that's really where you kind of understand where the Jays kind of are um, on the hierarchy in the American League right now. Uh, All right, Jake, it's Friday. You know what that means. Let's, let's get ugly, baby. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Something good, something bad, something ugly from the past week. How about that? Uh, let's begin with something good. Would you like to begin? Or would you like me to begin? I would like to begin. Go ahead. Not only did Adam Wainwright secure a win this week, he secured a gig. Are you aware of the oh, story. I did see this. Yes, yes. Tell it inform the audience. <laughs> this is from Joe Trezza at MLB.com. Wayno I's second act as con- country singer songwriter. Well, in the twilight of an exceptional career, Adam Wainwright isn't done pitching yet. Well, kind of. He's still, he's already planning his next act as a recording artist. The longtime Cardinals hurler plans to reinvent himself in retirement as a country singer songwriter. And the St. Louis faithful he's pitched in front of is going to get a sneak peek. The weekend-long celebration of Wainwright's career that later this month will feature an on-field concert from Wainwright himself. He is booked. I love using that word in this. In this. He is booked to perform three new original songs after the Cardinals game on September 30th against the Reds. And he plans to release a 15-track so far untitled album sometime early in 2024. The name of the album, Jordan. Name the album? No. no I, yeah, name the album. Oh, I was gonna say I don't know. One hundred and ninety nine wins is the name yeah. I was gonna say some some sort of maybe like I, I I don't know how many. Would you say how many tracks? Like, are we gonna have like a Yachty tribute? Like, are we gonna do something about Beltron? Like, are we draw? Like, this is gonna be interesting. Are we making? Because he sees it seems to be going like Bronson Arroyo is essentially gone this route, right? Like he's been yeah. making music now for a while now. Bronson Arroyo as a character already had a very different persona than Adam Wainwright who is more like the Southern gentleman, whereas Bronson Arroyo, it's like, oh, that's funny. Bronson is playing guitar. Um, but people love Bronson. And I think that with Wainwright, it'll be a similar thing. Like people will buy, oh my God, you think Cardinals fans will buy the shit out of that. Oh yeah. If Adam Wainwright is dropping a 15 track country album, set an over under number of names of MLB players referenced in the album. You set the line, I'll pick over under. Repeat references count like each time. So if he has a song where it's just like, I love Pujols, Pujols is my friend or something, that's two, all right? That's so two references. So, so this is proper noun watch. What about managers? Anybody who's donned a, a uniform okay. in the big leagues, okay? okay? So I'm gonna let you set the line and I'll do over under. 15 okay. tracks. 
15 tracks? 15 tracks. I'm going to set the line at two and a half. Okay. But that's, gonna... that's I, man, I don't know. I, I feel like, I have no idea how seriously he's taking this, right? Like, is he just doing this to like make a bunch of inside baseball jokes? Like, I kind of hope so because I'm more likely to listen to it. I don't think you can make a 15-track country album that you're not serious about. That's a lot of songs. <laughs> no, I agree. That's a I lot agree. of songs. I just, and for right. that reason, I'm going to hammer your horrible 2.5 over and collect my winnings at a later date. So okay, anyway, well, I, wait, I, wait. I guess I just mean is from a, from a songwriting standpoint. That's what I'm, I'm curious about. But yeah, I don't know. I, I have no clue what he obviously over the last 20 years, he's just been yeah. doing baseball. So that's what he's been thinking about. So I would assume, yeah. You know, I'm curious what kind of influence Nashville is going to have on him. Is he more of like a Zach Bryan, I do my own thing kind of country yeah. guy? Or is it like Morgan Wallen, I'm just, you know, an industry plant kind of guy? Yeah. I'm curious. Well, we're going to find out. Uh, my good this week is Blake Snell. Um, Blake Snell was amazing against the Dodgers. Blake Snell is in good position to win his second Cy Young. Would be only the second or would be one of just a handful of guys to win a Cy Young in both leagues. And here's really what hit me about Blake Snell as I was looking at his baseball reference page after he dominated the Dodgers earlier this week and only walked one. But even only walking one over six brought his walks per nine to five, brought it down to five walks per nine, okay? And I'm looking at his line where he is leading the league in ERA, He's leading the league with the lowest hits per nine allowed. And he is, of course, uh, way up there in terms of walks per nine, leading the league in walks per nine among qualified starters with an 11.7 strikeout per nine. And it hit me. I was like, who the hell, like, who the hell has done this? So I did some stat heading and I was like, what the, who's, who has had a season where you could be this good and strike out this many and walk this many? And it's essentially just Nolan Ryan. Like Blake Snell is doing a Nolan Ryan impression even in this year. And he's striking out more than Nolan Ryan ever did because we think about all those strikeouts that Nolan Ryan compiled. And a lot of that was, yeah, it was 10 per nine, 11 per nine sometimes. But it was also because he was throwing 350 innings. But he was also walking the house, right? But it's just, there really aren't that many examples of this many walks. The other guy that, that shows up when you do searches like this is Kerry Wood, which I think is really interesting. But it is like, and, I, and it made me think about how people viewed Nolan Ryan. And I know that a lot of his was the velocity was so unique and, and the how much of a horse he was. I get that. There's a lot of things that went with Nolan Ryan. But just purely statistically, Blake Snell is in very rare territory, whether you like it or not. And uh, he's he is really, and, and I, I guess I was thinking about it with Nolan Ryan is in the same way that we watch Blake Snell, where people watching Nolan Ryan saying like, just fucking throw it down the middle. They can't hit it. Like, was that how people were saying for 15 years? Or was it an understanding that he did not have the command and control? I don't know. But I think Blake Snell's pretty good. So there you go. My bad is NSFW. All right, I'm ready. If you are a child, do not listen to this. If you <laughs> if you're Alex NSF Spears, nine-year-old kid, do not listen to this. Not for you, okay? If you're listening and your kids are in the car... Put on Zaboomafoo or some shit, okay? Jordan, are you familiar with a concept called Rule 34? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. And I'm very curious where you are going with this. For those who do not know, Rule 34, this is straight from Wikipedia, is an internet meme which claims that internet pornography exists concerning every possible topic, the concept is commonly depicted as fan art of normally non-erotic subjects engaging in sexual behavior and or activity. 
This is courtesy of a Twitter account at Jake MHS. This is a post from Reddit posted in our baseball amount of rule 34 of MLB mascots. So this is <laughs> uncomfortable sexual depictions, uncomfortable in my opinion, of MLB mascots ranked mm-hmm. by the mascots. Like this the is most truly common. Like, could not explain more why I am not on Reddit more. Like this is yeah. the perfect example of what I am not interested in running into when yeah. I open essentially any Reddit. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, like I this I don't have any pictures of weird mm-hmm. stomper stuff. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. I'm not looking for that. This is just a graph mm. of the amount of weird sexual depictions of mascots by team. Yeah. Do you have any and- any thoughts or guesses? No, definitely not. I am just glad you were putting this in bad and not ugly. Yeah, this is bad. Here's why this is super bad, okay? Mrs. Met has 60 examples Mm. of Mrs. Met stuff. And the second most is the Blue Jay bird at four. And so Mets fans out (laughs) there. This is just a, that's what this is though. That's really what this is. The whole point of this research is just to make that point which i will say people the 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 mrs met stuff has has skyrocketed this year for whatever reason <laughs> yeah yeah like mrs met there's more mrs met weird mrs met porn than every other mascot combined by a yeah. lot yeah and so do you think this is mets fans or just weirdos or both I think it's I think it's every worst possible answer that you have. It's that it is that it is definitely that. So, this is all bad, though. <laughs> this is definitely bad, and I uh, yeah, it's it's in bad. So if you're mad at us for bringing it up, you're yeah. mad at Jake for bringing it up. It's it's in bad. We put it in bad. Just want to let you know, Mariner Moose not on here. All right. Thank you. I'm glad someone did the research because we certainly were not going to do that. My bad this week. Thank you for sharing, Jake. My bad this week. No problem, dude. Were you on our baseball? Did someone send this to you? No. No. Okay. Uh, My bad this week is a truly unfathomable, not so fun fact, courtesy of Mark Zuckerman, who covers the Nationals. Did you see this? I I retweeted this. This just absolutely blew my mind, which is basically that, so Jackson Rutledge made his major league debut against Pittsburgh. And he lost because the Nationals are bad. The Nationals have not had a starting pitcher record the win in their major league debut since Steven Strasburg. Okay? Let me say it again. Nationals. He was good pitcher. that day, right? Strasburg was good that I, day. I, we, we've talked about that a little bit. Okay. Uh, 2010. That was 17 pitchers ago, okay? 17 different Nationals pitchers have come up, started a game in their major league debut, and failed to record the win. I just, like, and this is, I've I've thought a lot about pitcher wins recently because, like, while they don't actually matter that much in terms of pitcher performance, and there's plenty of examples of this over the past few years where it's like, whatever, even with the Nationals, guy pitches pretty well, they still lose, or he pitches well, and the game's tied when they get, I just couldn't get over this. And the thing was, is that like, I didn't know if this was something that the Nats had been, that they'd been tracking a lot and I, I had no sense. So I looked it up. I was like, is this actually notable? 
And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. They, they are so far and away the team. No one else. I think the Cardinals are second. I know the Royals, it's been a while. But most teams have a guy come up and win a freaking baseball game. But not the Nationals. And that streak continues to live. And that is bad. Who is going to break that? We will find out. Travis Sakura, we <laughs> we are hoping for the best for you. Uh, Jake, what is Agla? Ugla is Liam Hendricks admitting that he pitched through a tour in UCL earlier this year. Um, this came out this week. Here's my thought on this. Here's why this is Ugla. Because you could put it in bad if you're an Orioles fan. Because Liam Hendricks looked like shit when he was pitching this year on the mound. We love Liam Hendricks, and I commend him for trying to push through the paint, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't exactly the best results. And as we are looking at Felix Bautista trying to do something similar for the Orioles, it doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Um, I like it. I, I think that very often players are hesitant to admit that they are playing through injury when they are playing through injury and even after the fact. And so for me, it's a bit ugly to hear someone just be like, no, no, no I wasn't right. And uh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, Hendricks, it seems like his explanation was, I was going to pitch in the big leagues this year. I didn't care if, obviously, he's coming back from cancer. So it's not even about the how his elbow was feeling. But that is a pretty interesting context to see. Uh, he did only pitch five games in the major leagues. But um, credit to him, man. He is a, he is a, a, hell of a hell of a person, hell of a guy who wanted to come back and, and, and pitch for the White Sox. And, of course, that was earlier in the season, at least a little bit before their season was completely off the rails. But... Nevertheless, we love Liam Hendricks and we love Australia. More on that in a second. My Ugla is a Baseball America article about bat speed. They uh, Major League Baseball has been tracking this, although it is not. This is the first place where I've seen the public information or this this these uh, this data presented uh, publicly through Baseball America, where it's basically a leaderboard of who has the best bat speed in baseball. And basically, this is a study they did at BA, JJ Cooper, basically how does bat speed actually correlate to you know performance, blah, 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 and exit velos and everything. Generally, yes, it's not a guarantee for me a good hitter, but it is so fun to look at who's at the top and bottom of these lists and kind of understand why players are at the top of the list. So first and foremost, John Carlos Stanton is number one, and it's not even close. He is three miles an hour on average ahead of second place, who is Franchi Cordero, by the way, which is amazing. One ahead of Mike Trout. So the top three is Stanton, Franchi, Trout. We love that. But he is as ahead of Franchi as Franchi is of like, you know, a guy 60 spots at him. So it's a great way to verify, not that we needed proof, that Giancarlo is literally in his own universe. Other guys at the top that I found interesting, of course, whatever, Judge, Acuna, Ellie De La Cruz is in the top 10, Otani, Robert, Riley Green is in the top 15, which is very interesting. Jake Bowers, who has been horrible for the last month, is up here at the top. Um, but hopefully he can, uh, but there, there, there's, you know, clearly there's something there that the Yankees like. Uh, Dalton Varsho up there, even though he's having a tough year. We got, you know, Julio, Machado up there, Matt Olson. Okay, great. The bottom is really where we have some fun, Jake. Because this is the bottom. This is the bottom three, okay? I'll go from five, from five to one for lowest average bat speed this year, okay? Five, Tony Kemp. Four, the aforementioned Nicky Lopez. Three, Stephen Kwan. Two, Luis Arise. And number one, Nolan Shanuel. 
Okay. So when I read you those names, what does that make you think? So maybe I'm, maybe this is totally wrong. I mean, the type of hitter you have at the bottom there, it's, except for, I guess, Sean Uel kind of, it's like low power, high contact, high average hitters, right? Are these players who cannot swing the bat harder? Or is this players who choose not to swing the bat harder? Because swinging as hard as you can and committing to a high bat speed swing means that you have less control over the bat at making contact. And so do I, this is why I like, I think if Stephen Kwan, if you were like, hey, dude, I want you to go swing as hard as you can, like he could be a fine bat speed guy. But I think it is the way that they approach hitting that keeps those numbers down. I totally agree. And I, I just think that that's fascinating. And I think that Sean Uel is the really interesting one here as someone who, of course, they drafted him this year. They rushed him in the majors. Everyone says, oh, he's 60 bat, 60 power. But what this is reminding me of in the way that he's looked in the majors with essentially zero power whatsoever, but still getting on base, it's kind of what he did in the Cape when he was hitting with wood bats last summer, where it's like, okay, like he clearly knows what he's doing, but can he impact the baseball? This is a very weird profile. <laughs> he's going to be a first baseman. Like, unless he's just going to go full Derek Barton in his best season, I do not know what this is actually going to look like. So, yes, but you can also do bat speed training. It is something that you can improve mm-hmm. over time. Pretty, not easily, but it, it similarly to how you can improve pitching velocity. It is the most comparable in terms of the way that you can develop it. And Sean Uel has not had the opportunity to do that at the minor league level. Do I trust the Angels player development staff to do that correctly? That's a different conversation. Yeah. But do I think that Nolan Sean Uel will have the slowest bat speed in baseball a year from now? I do not. Well, I'm excited to continue to track this. Just a couple other names near the bottom in the bottom 20, which I find interesting. Okay, Madrigal, of course, with Merrifield. Josh Donaldson is in the bottom 10, which is great because his exit velos are still crazy high, which just tells me he's still freakishly strong. But that doesn't mean that he is, you know, actually supplying the same bat speed. Uh, and then Anthony Rendon's down here. No particular shock uh, about that. So super interesting. That's just because uh, that's because he's not in the mood. That's because Anthony Rendon's not in the mood to swing any harder. That's definitely true. All right, Jake. Our final topic today is with producer Chris. I know we've gone a little long on this podcast, but I'm excited to bring Chris on. He's to still talk well about enough, something Jordan. That means he's still, a lot. He's still wa- wet-eyed. He is still a little bit teary-eyed. Chris, what happened early this morning on the East Coast? Uh, about two hours ago. Um, my beloved Australian football team, the Carlton Blues, won a finals game that took them through to what we call the preliminary final, which is their first preliminary final berth in 23 years. Um, I can't remember uh, that game specifically, but I remember the prelim from 99. So it's been 24 years since I have seen my football team make it this far. And uh, the emotions I'm feeling right now are uh, kind of uh, unexpected, I think. I didn't think I'd be um, feeling like this. It's, it's, it's honestly felt like I've been in shock for the last two hours. I can't really, uh, I can't really concentrate. Uh, there's so much pent-up adrenaline in- coursing through my veins right now. I feel like I've got to get down and do like a bunch of push-ups or something. <laughs> so, so if it's not obvious, right? This is the most important sports team to you in your life. Without a doubt. Yeah. And, and they've been they've been terrible since 2001. 
Um, oh, I, I know I, Tina's terrible since 2001. <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't been <laughs> yeah. it hasn't been very good uh, for the last you know 22 years or so, and they kind of came out of nowhere this year, and uh, we uh, we were down uh, all okay. that last quarter. That so, was the so thing, let's. Right? Here's the thing. We are not going to explain Austria's football because I can't, but I am going to tell you a little bit how I experienced this because Chris has at least explained, you know, he, he's gotten us in, in the loop about how the scoring is and whatever. And we knew that this game was happening. And, and again, for, for comparison to preliminary finals, it's, it's a bracket. There's no series. It's just one game a piece. And so they're essentially in the semifinals, whatever the, you know, the LCS equivalent. Okay, great. This morning, I know this game was happening very early. When I woke up, I looked up and I, I found the score. And I, I found like a live game cast thing or whatever. And the clock was counting up, which I know is that's how it is in, in soccer too. But I didn't know how long a quarter <laughs> yeah. lasted. So I looked Incredible. and they were losing. And the fourth quarter clock was going up. But I didn't know when it was. I didn't know how much time they had left. To win. And so at the time they were losing and I, I was like, it seemed like they were running out of time. I fell back asleep. I wake up to your text saying, oh my God, they fucking won. So like that, and it sounds like, again, you don't have to necessarily recap the play by play because I don't know if we're going to understand it, but it does sound like they won very late. We won in the last minute. We were, we were down for most of that last quarter. Um, we were playing against a team called Melbourne. Melbourne peppered a bunch of shots at goal, kept Kept missing, kept missing, kept missing, kept us in it, and with with one minute to go, we uh, we scored a goal, put us in front, we held on. Were uh, you screaming? I just want to know your reaction. Yeah, one hundred percent. And my waking my up, wife, Izzy. Yeah. No, Izzy was already at daycare. Oh but no, that's my clutch. wife had an eight thirty meeting, <laughs> and uh, her, all her meetings are pretty bloody important. She works in HR, right? And at 8.31, the siren went. And I'm like, I do not give a fuck about being quiet <laughs> for these people. I am she going go to go mute. off my head. And I, I had to let it out, man. And the, the, the thing that surprised me, like legitimately, that, that's the biggest game that I've ever seen in my life. I've never felt feelings like this before. Like my body is experiencing things physiologically that I didn't know it was possible. Um, I... I, I cried and I didn't yeah. think that I would cry for a game that like, we're still not in the grand final yet. Right. Like we still have to win next week to make a grand final. I didn't think I would be crying for a game like this, but I, I can't help it, man. Yeah. Like I, it, it's, it, it feels amazing. It really does. To put this in perspective for people, a hundred thousand people, Australians go to the final. Yeah, there were 96,000 at the game today. Yeah, yeah. 100,000 are at the grand final. And so it's like, this is the, the sport, right? It With is the sport. And it is not just the sport. It is your sport, right? Completely baseball, unique to us. Yeah, baseball is played by many different places and cultures and spread throughout the world, right? For whatever fucking reason, you guys did a terrible job at <laughs> promoting this thing. Yeah. And and it has resulted in a, in a culture where it's yours. And what that means is it is uniquely Australian. And I think that is certainly playing a role in the fact that you are tearing up at 10.15 in the morning uh, in North Carolina on a Zoom yeah, call. Well, well, that's the thing. It's sort of, I've got, I've got so much bloody FOMO right now, like, 
knowing that there are so many Carlton supporters back at home celebrating and I can't be there. It's sort of, that's been really tough for me. So I kind of, I don't want to look too far ahead, but like if we end up making it to the grand final, I'm going to have to travel to like New York or something like that, where there's a bunch of Australians that I can watch the game with, because I'm not going to watch the, I'm, if we make the grand final, I'm not watching it on my own. I just, I can't. Yeah. Jordan, I, I think we should do a podcast, week. podcast GoFundMe to send Chris to the grand final. Oh, mate, imagine. Imagine. oh my god yeah we'll uh i mean we'll find we'll, we'll obviously this this is going to be a, a big a big storyline to watch in the coming weeks the next game is it is it next friday no it's next saturday morning it'll be about 2 30 a.m and i got my yeah. daughter's birthday that morning so oh, uh, i still have to figure out logistics whether i sleep beforehand or <laughs> pull an all-nighter i'm not entirely sure but i don't care the fact that we're in a prelim like it's honestly completely unbelievable and i i just don't know what to think i don't know how to feel i need to go for a run so we'll see <laughs> we'll let you go uh thank you uh for for giving us that check and congratulations we're very very oh, very happy for you thank you uh and we will continue to monitor that if it's that saturday i don't know because then we'll have yom kippur and we have to figure out our podcast schedule for that after that but we will figure that out when it comes um otherwise this has been a long podcast but a great one thank you chris tyler for producing congrats again thank you jake Vince, for co-hosting with me thank you alex spear the boston globe for joining us fantastic special guest alex was uh quickly jake as we look ahead series this weekend that we are most looking forward to i mean it's Rays orioles that's the most important one Rays taking game one last night i know you were there for that close one other than that uh in terms of stakes for both teams it's actually, I guess, Cubs D-backs again. We got Cubs D-backs in Arizona uh, this week. Uh, Mariners-Dodgers is fun, but obviously it doesn't matter that much to the Dodgers. So it's really all about Rays-Orioles and then, you know, all those teams trying to hang on against bad teams. We did it. Any final thoughts, Jake Mintz? No, I'm, I'm, I'm cooked. All right. Bye, everybody. Have a good weekend. Con the Blues. Sirius XM Podcasts.